Love the sounds of New Orleans? Jump into the second line, where you'll hear everything from Dixieland to brass bands, jazz, Zydeco, and so much more. On Tuesdays from 2 to 4 p.m., right here on WERU. Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. And the time is just about 10 o'clock. You're listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, this is Wabanaki Windows. Uh, it's a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Chiffon Sr., Associate Professor of English at the University of New Hampshire. She's the uh, editor of Donland Voices, an anthology of writing from indigenous uh, New England writers. Uh, we also have uh, Pam Odysseus Cunningham, a Penobscot tribal member. Uh, she's also the daughter of uh, Sipsis, who was well-known and, res- and a respected author and activist um, in her own right. Uh, we also have uh, on the line uh, Carol Dana, who's a Penobscot Nation tribal elder. Uh, she's, uh, she works with the uh, cultural department on Indian Island, and uh, she is the uh, language expert for us. So uh, welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. Um, and, uh, okay, I think we're just getting uh, Chiffon and Carol online. Uh, Chiffon is uh, in New Hampshire. Are you there, Chiffon? Hello. Okay. Who's this? This is Siobhan. Siobhan. Okay, great. All right. So I'm I'm going to introduce you to the listening audience. All right. Okay. So uh, Siobhan Sr. is in a... Associate Professor of English at the University of New Hampshire, where she teaches courses in Native American literature, uh, women's studies, and sustainability studies. She's the editor of Donland Voices, an anthology of writing from indigenous uh, New England. Um, And her uh, other publications include Voices of American Indian Assimilation and Resistance, uh, and essays in journals including American Literature, American Indian Quarterly, Studies in American Indian Literatures. Um, uh, it's, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this, but M-E-L-U-S, uh, Disability Studies. Oh, Mellis. Okay, Mellis, yeah. okay. Uh, <laughs> quarterly and uh, re- Resilience, a, is that it, Resilience? Resilience, a journal of Envi- environmental humanities. So, uh, and there's uh, Pam. I'm going to, first of all, uh, after I gave that quick intro for you, uh, Chiffon, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your background that I didn't, that I didn't say? <laughs> what about my background? Well, tell me about you. About me? Yeah. Uh, I live in New Hampshire with my two dogs who might bark at some point during this show. Okay. Um, I went to Illinois, um, alas, University of Illinois. I got a great education uh, for my for my doctoral degree. Um, but Illinois, as you may know, your listeners may know, has that um, incredibly racist mascot, Chief Alinawek. Oh, yeah. 
So I was there during some of the first protests against that. Um, and I came out to New England in 1997. My first job was at the University of Maine in Farmington. And I taught there for three years, and then I got this job at the University of New Hampshire. Um, what else can I tell you? Okay, well, I think that's yeah. that's good. I, we, we've got a good idea of uh, who you are. <laughs> okay, next on the spot here, the hot seat, is oh. Pam. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> So tell us about a little bit about yourself, Pam. Uh, well, I'm a master basket maker. Um, did my first apprenticeship back in 1998, I believe. Um, and for the most part, I've been a stay-at-home mom, taking care of my kids, making baskets. And um, and I just went through massage school, so I'm a licensed massage therapist, and I wanted to um, do that for my mom, who had Alzheimer's, um, so our conversations weren't... We really didn't have conversations, so I thought that would be a nice way to, you know, connect with her. Um, and I'm building a farm, labyrinth farm with lavender. Um, and I have two boys live in Hamden, and I'm a tribal council member. Yeah, great, great, great. What about you, Carol? Carol Dana? Yes, I work for Cultural Historic Preservation Office, and I've made a big effort in bringing uh, back our stories. I've done research at University of Maine and gathered uh, maybe 200 stories, and I was going to write uh, something about them or gather them in an anthology, but I have to sort out which ones were, you know, uh, for 90 years. And I work here in language, in the Penobscot language for the tribe, and I worked at the school I attended UMO. Uh, my college education has been sporadic, but I did finish, and I got a master's in 2008. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, I write poetry. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, what we're going to talk about. Good segue into our our uh, discussion, the uh, the book. We're gonna, first of all, we're going to talk about the book, Dawnland Voices. Oh, uh, yeah. And Chiffon, uh, and so tell us... Uh, how that came about, a little little bit of background on that book. That book really started 20 years ago. Um, when I got that job at the University of Maine, they hired me to teach American literature and Native American literature. And I felt like I ought to be teaching some of the literature of this place, New England. But um, people kept telling me, well, there isn't any. And... Uh, mm-hmm. And I knew that was a lie, because <laughs> exactly. yes. um, I had been trained in graduate school. You know, when they tell you there were no women writers back then or there were no black writers back then, it's a lie. Um, I had a really great professor who said it's just that nobody went looking for it. So, um, But I was only trained as a Ph.D. in English to go looking in books and archives, and I figured out pretty fast that um, I actually had to talk to people. Um, And it's not something I was trained to do. Um, It's not something I even really expected to do when I did a Ph.D. in literature, right, because I always liked books. But um, I figured out pretty fast that it it was Native people who were the ones who knew who the writers were and are. And um, sometimes people hear about this book, Dawnland Voices, and they say, oh, New England Native writers, it's, uh, oh, it was all oral tradition back then, right? And uh and I'd say, well, you know, first of all, it wasn't back then. They're still around now. And um, B, it wasn't, it wasn't all oral. They were writing a lot. They wrote a lot. So um, I started by inviting people to talk to my classes. So when I was at UMaine, Wayne Newell came, really lovely man. He, brought, uh, he showed my students some Passamaquoddy children's books that um, he had in his own collection, you know, that had been sort of just printed by the tribe and... John Bear Mitchell came. Students really enjoyed him. He brought uh, some Gluskabe stories that he had written. Um, I also met Margot Lukens at that time. Uh, you all had a Wabanaki conference over at UMaine sometime in the late 90s, and I heard Margot give this talk on um, all the Wabanaki literature that she had, she had learned about. So I knew I had to study up, and... Um, in 2000, when I came here to the U of New Hampshire, I have a colleague, David Waters, who was putting together this huge encyclopedia of New England culture, and he um, he asked me to do an entry on Native American writers from New England, and um, and I still knew I had to 
I had to have help with it. So I remember just calling different tribal historians and different tribal officers, and I remember just, like, blind calling over at Mohegan. And um, I got Melissa Tantaquidgen Zobo on the phone. She's the Mohegan medicine woman, and she was so generous. She said, uh, oh, you know, we had... We had Emma Baker, who was a medicine woman in the 1920s, and we had Fidelia Fielding. And she's telling me about all these writers who really generally weren't published, right? They were just known about in the tribe. And then she says, she says, oh, Siobhan, that's an Irish name, and I'm writing a Gothic novel about <laughs> Indians and Irish. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, like, every time I ter- talked to a Native person, it was just, like, mind blown. You know, they were keeping all of this literary history um, they knew who their language keepers were. You know, you all. You all knew who wrote the language down. You all know who were, who was publishing dictionaries in the 19th centuries. You all know who was doing tribal magazines in the 1930s or who was writing for the newspapers during the federal recognition times. Um, so after a few years of talking to people and, and learning all these great stories, and I was doing course packets at the time. Like every time I taught a course, I have to Xerox stuff and you know, go down to the local copy shop. That got really tedious. Um, so I just wished somebody would do a book. I kind of hoped Margot would do it, but she was busy with the theater. Um, <laughs> and I knew I couldn't is. do it alone, so I, I reached out to people I already knew, like Lisa Brooks, um, who's an Abenaki professor. She teaches at Amherst College now, and Don Dove, uh, Narragansett historian, is somebody I'd gotten to know. And then I just sort of asked around the network, um, for other contracts, so contacts. So Melissa um, Zobel told me she wasn't the one to do it for Mohegan, but she referred me to Stephanie Fielding and and so on and so on. And I, I wound up with eleven tribal editors, including Carol was one of them, the one for Penobscot, mm-hmm. uh, from ten tribal nations. We never did find a tribal editor for Pequot, which still bugs me. Um, Jason Mancini, who's the director now of Mashantucket. Museum had been working with some Pequot women elders over there, and they just they were just too busy. They were too strapped. They couldn't pull it together. So we settled for 10 tribal nations, which is still a lot. This book is uh, almost 700 pages long. And I guess the only other thing I would say about it, because um, I'd love to hear Carol talk about her experience with it, um, we went with the University of Nebraska Press. Sometimes people think, oh, that's funny. You know, why was this book about New England published in Nebraska? But University of Nebraska Press, among university presses, is really the best uh, for Native American literature. They have a really good reputation. They do a really fine job with reprinting things that have gone out of print um, or bringing new voices, new Native voices to light. They have really, really wonderful publications. And I will say that... Um, they really, it just took a long time. I mean, this whole book took over 10 years to put through publication and um, and editing and all of that stuff. But the, the press really was responsive, I think, to the needs of the writers. So the way that things work usually with university presses is that when you publish with them, you know, you sign over all your rights, your rights to your firstborn, your rights to future publications. And, and a lot of the writers just weren't comfortable with that. And so the the press changed their contract um, to revert, you know, to have all the rights revert to the writers after mm-hmm. publications, which mm-hmm. is unusual yeah. for yeah. a university mm-hmm. press. And they also designed their own cover because that's the way university presses do things. You know, they, they designed a cover in-house. And um, when they showed us this cover, a couple of the tribal editors and writers just blew up. They said, we hate that. And, um, and they came up with their own idea and the press redesigned the cover um and the cover we have now is beautiful yes it is i think um and and most people really love it so the university of nebraska press i just wanted to put in a plug for them they really they really did well by us um and created a really beautiful book so yeah mm-hmm. and i think there's a there it's divided up into sections right into tribal sections yeah it seemed to make sense to organize it i didn't know you know we went back and forth on how to organize it do you organize the whole thing chronologically i mean because there's stuff that goes back to the 1600s in here all the way up to the present um but it seemed to make sense to organize it by tribal nation so that you can see the continuity within each tribal nation um and one of my favorite things about this book is the introductions to the selections from tribal nations that people like Carol wrote. I think they're really they're really beautiful and they provide a really deep context for the writings that people encounter. 
Well, I think you did a great job in, in finding the writers because, I mean, I can just, if I think of a writer and I go to this book, they're in here. That's amazing. So that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good. Yeah. Very good, actually. That was, that was the tribal editors. Yeah. So like the, I said, they know. Yep. Yeah. So the Moccasin Telegraph really works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sure does. So, uh, so Carol. Yeah. What was your experience with this, uh, editing this? Well, I was looking for people who had written and tried to get them in there, and it was uh, a little difficult, uh, you know, to get people to really track down anyone who, everyone who wrote. But we got a few in there, and I felt uh, honored to be amongst, you know, the writers. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I wish I had more time to write. I try to write uh, short stories. Somebody told me that I should be writing short stories, but it was very uh, good experience, and I enjoyed it immensely and glad to be counted among the writers. I have two uh, poetry books, and I think uh, one of the ladies who used to write was deceased, and we tried to get, you know, see if her daughter still had her material around, and, you know, it was... Uh, a little difficult to track everybody down, but those who knew about it, you know, were there and they put had their input in into it. So it was fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to read any of it, Pam? Or? Um, I read a couple, um, my mom's, yeah. <laughs> for one. Yeah. And, yeah, I was really surprised at how big it was um, or is. And uh, I, I love to read, so I'm sure I'll um, be reading this again. You know, since we're on this, there's <laughs> I I really am not that familiar with everything that Sipsis wrote, but there is a poem in here that I really like, and I and I and Chiffon likes it, and I think Carol, everybody gets a kick right. out of it. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to read it. Wonderful. Excellent. Uh, and it's and it's called uh, Engine Laugh. And you got to remember, I'll just read the intro. I, uh, did you write the intro to this, Carol? Possibly. Okay, it says, uh, the intro is uh, Sipsis, uh, Penobscot for Little Bird, was born on Indian Island in the Penobscot Nation and is well known for her writing and visual art. Some of her birch bark uh, etchings are on permanent display at the Penobscot Nation Museum on Indian Island. Other works are the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Sipsis has also worked as a social worker and as an editor for the main Indian newsletter, which we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pieces below first appeared in Molly Molasses and Me, a book she calls a collection of living adventures with her Passamaquoddy friend, Georgia Mitchell, in which she uses great, a great many Passamaquoddy terms. This way... <laughs> She she had such a sense of humor. Yeah, I did. <laughs> this one really shows it. It's called Engine Laugh. And when she again when she wrote it, she was I think from the sound of it, she was still uh, going to school at. Would she go to school at Bowdoin or Colby? Colby. Colby. Okay, she was going to school. And anyway, so and, and learning stuff about the environment and whatever. So okay, so here it goes. I'm very glad to be here and see lots of shiny faces. I come from long way up river, from the Aboriginal people's places. I'm supposed to talk about ecology, environment, and tradition, and living uh, the creature's way, indigenous people's rights, legal fights, and bicultural education. I wish I could stay a long time to talk about those things, but I worry that my place be gone if long time I stay away. I would get restless and homesick for my own nation, and I might shrivel up and die for a taste of moose and beaver. (laughs) So maybe we'd be done with greeting and get into the meat, heart of talk, so I can get back to native land. I'm very glad to learn about radiation that they plant near my reservation, for that means some grow no hair, and their faces bare, and they light up in the dark so we can see who they are and not shoot for bear. I learn about cyclamates, a chemical sweetener the hard way. And that was about 10 years ago when a Big Mac truck 
uh, dump on reservation, all that soda pop mm. that stories don't that stores don't want, and so give engine. They also give engine diarrhea, and cancer, and short lifespan. But we don't worry what white men don't that white men don't care, because we just passing through, and we got better place to go. Mm-hmm. I laugh when history books say that white men took Indian land away because I still see land sitting there today. And white men tell us it's written in their book who own land. Injun still laugh because he no read book. <laughs> and Injun know who owns land and it written in Injun book. Mm-hmm. And white men teach us in their school all those things, including golden rule and Injun laugh because he no fool. And he don't want to be taught like a gall dang mule. Mm-hmm. And white men get mad because Injun laugh. And they put us in jail because we don't believe their book. But we don't worry that white men don't care because we just passing through. And we better got, and we got better place to go. And white men try and try to find Injun book. He cut down tree. He moved mountain. He dig up grave. He looked through garbage dump and shell heap, all time looking for Injun book. And Injun just sit there and laugh because white man still can't find Injun book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know us Injuns walk freely on earth. You see some white folk never touch ground. All time feet is far away from earth. Those white folk never get kissed from earth mother. They got high platform shoes. Then they get in car with 15 inches of rubber and they get in car inside 10-room house, and they drive in car on five-inch of black tar out of concrete city into country and back again and still never touch earth. What they afraid of? They buzz around sky like pigeon and whiz around ground like chipmunk. <clears throat> Where are they going? As you know, us Indians walk freely. You know how much it costs for white men to walk on Indian land? It costs plenty. For moccasins that are 15 deer hides thick, it cost them plenty. <laughs> For houses that are 10 wigwams wide, and it cost them plenty to move car that weighs one ton boulder, yes, it cost them plenty. And they need their own river because they, <laughs> they, <laughs> of their skew and smell and their Michigan stink, and, and they cut to mix it. One skew into 15 miles of river, <laughs> And they got no room to plant trees and flowers to take that pollution smell away because they fence in all that short grass that even a rabbit <clears throat> would starve on. And you wonder why I ask what this white man, if they my brother and sister, why they do not like river, rabbit, and blue sky. If they my brother and sister, then I would say to them, brother, I don't like some of those things you do. And if you don't stop doing those nasty things, I'm going to get mad and throw water on you. <laughs> and if that don't work, I'm going to throw you into the fire. And if that don't work, I'm going to tell my mother. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, and she's going to ban you from this side of the river forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know us Indians, we got lots of trust. There's uh, the... Livermore Savings Trust, <laughs> the Andrew Scoggin Banking and Trust, the Merrill Trust. Our investment is in good name, so if Maine go broke, you know who to blame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a great, great poem. I love it. I, I saw that. Too. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I wonder what year she wrote that. Oh, uh, Jewel. Well. I can't remember exactly. I think it was a... 80s or 70s? It should be in the bibliography. Let's see. Yeah, we'll leave that to you to... <laughs> I got it right in front of me, but there's... Yeah, 1988. Ah. Uh, she published it in 1988. Yeah. First yeah. time. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's poems and, and writings like that um, that this book has. I mean, it's it's it takes pieces, and then there's, there's writings from magazines and writings from people just wanting to write and just putting mm-hmm. it down that would you'd lose otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a really uh, valuable book. Great so- source. 
And I love the size. You know, Pam said she was surprised when she saw how big it was. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. a lot of people were, you know, and a lot of, I'll say this again about the publisher, a lot of publishers want to cap books that, you know, please, no more than 300 pages. But, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we said we wanted it to be longer. And they said, okay, you know, however long you want. And I think there's something really powerful because people make so many assumptions about Native people in New England, right? They're not here. There's not many of them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they had all oral tradition that, like, when you hold this book in your hand, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah. You know, and and people think, well, <clears throat> if they did write something, it's on the lines of C. Jane Run. So. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. So this kind of... Uh, Blows that out of the water. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, she did mention uh, Earth Mother mm-hmm. in her poem, <laughs> and we actually have uh, Earth Mother sitting here across from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pam, Pam brought her uh, one of her puppets. Yes. Oh, yes, and, uh, excellent. It's, uh, Earth Mother, yeah, my, tell us about that, Pam. Uh, well, my mom had um, these puppets because she liked to story tell, and um, and I used to think that her stories that they were written down that she um, that they were you know from the past, um, and then I asked her a few years before you know her Alzheimer's set in. Um, if she had written them down, and she says, "Oh no, I just made them up," and so she would story tell and use these puppets to teach the children some values of you know culture and traditions, and um, and then just kind of make it up as she went along, which I thought was wonderful. Um, and this one here, Mother Earth, um, her moccasins—you can see where she's danced and and uh, walked around as she was. Um, telling stories. Her other puppets, she has Guscabe and the three birds. Yeah, and I would tell her story and she would get it. She would have it. The next thing you know, she'd be doing it. Yeah. With the puppets. <laughs> we had to do that sometime, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I, on these puppets, um, well, part of uh, the Emerald Dash Borer Beetle and Basket Making, um, if we weren't able to make baskets, you know, we could lose a whole generation. Um, so I had, I was trying to do research and um, find out what other materials we could use to keep our culture and traditions going. And, um, you know, there's other materials you can use to make baskets. But I happened to come upon wool. And, uh, you know, it, we wouldn't really be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, make baskets. But we could keep our double curve designs and um, mm-hmm. teach the kids and the elders and people could make some money. Um, and then with the puppets um, on Mother Earth, her p- pants had gotten um, some stains on them and my mom wanted me to fix them. Um, and through this discovery of wool, I have, um, I'm working on my own puppet, um, Turtle Woman, and I've got her head made. And I thought about changing Mother Earth's um, head and face on this puppet uh, because my mom made it out of paper mache and kind of penciled in the face. Um, and I thought, well, I can make it better. Um, and so, um, but as things have progressed, um, I'm not going to touch her puppet. I'm just going to make my own mm-hmm. and then kind of um, do storytelling, you know, with her puppets and my oh, puppets. That would be great. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get together with Carol this winter about and doing um, storytelling and just sitting around doing the wool. Because isn't wintertime the time to be in yeah. storytelling? Yeah, so I'll get back to the school and be telling them there, I think at Tuesday at 3, but I wanted to oh. do storytelling among the general public, maybe go to Nick Sapiel. Oh, yeah. And just do stories. I'll, I'll make sure I call you. Yeah, and I'll bring the puppets. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> right. Now, the other thing that we that I wanted to talk about was, um, the other thing you've done, Chiffon, is uh, you've built a website. Yes. Uh, you want to tell us how to get to that website? It's, uh, we made it easier. It's dawnlandvoices.org. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something much more complicated, but we finally streamlined <laughs> it. And um, we started it because it was, it was really like overflow from the book. Oh. So, you know, even though this book is 700 pages, you know, every tribal editor could only have really 50. And uh, they just kept finding a lot more material than we could put in the pages of a book. So um, because a book takes so long 
to produce, I thought, well, we'll start this website. And, um, you know, it's a chance for people to put the stuff that they kept finding. But also for students, um, it's a chance for college students to learn. I mean, they learn some technical writing skills when they work on this, um, as well as Native literary history. But they also get to give something back. I mean, I, I teach mainly... I teach predominantly white students, and uh, when they start learning about Native history, they get so depressed, um, like, oh, we suck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I tell them, look, you have skills. You can write, you can research, you know, you can access the Internet, and you can, you know, do something here. Mm -hmm. So, um, So we started really piecemeal, you know, where students had a digital image of something, like a basket or um Donna, you you gave us some pieces that you wrote on Rachel Talbot Ross and yeah. um, that great piece that you wrote after the Charlestown massacre and and students can sort of put these together with some context. They can research the biography of the writer. They can read related works. They can um, they can do the same thing they do in a stodgy essay for a college professor, but they're doing it online um, out in the world, and it's that's exciting for them. And it's exciting when they you know, talk to Native writers. I always make them consult with Native writers before they put anything up, and it's it's really been a good experience for this for them. So um, donlandvoices.org actually has two sides to it. It's got um, one side, which is like this electronic literary magazine, which uh, we're just doing our fourth issue now, and um, the editor-in-chief is Cheryl Savageau, really excellent Abenaki poet. And, so could I resubmit to that? Absolutely. Okay. We would love it. Mm-hmm. All right. Would really Everybody out right there. Now, so yes. <laughs> All you Native it. writers, there you yeah. go. <laughs> We'd be tickled. Um, so there's there's born digital stuff, right? There's stuff like Carol is writing um, that hasn't been published before. Uh, one really exciting thing that happened on this side is uh, Natalie Dana, who's a young Passamaquoddy poet, um, published a bilingual children's story on the website and got some interest from a publisher and she's now publishing a children's book Um, so we love that Um, and then we also create a print version so the the journal the this electronic literary magazine donland we call it donland voices 2.0 to be very hip and sexy Um, (laughs) it comes out once it comes out once every six months so twice a year and then at the end of the year um, we create just a print version, a very simple, streamlined print version on Amazon.com that you can get for like five bucks, just at cost. Oh, nice. um, so it, it exists in both forms. And then on the other side, if people go to the website and sort of look at the top bar of the website, there's a little thing that they can click on that says Indigenous New England Digital Collections. And that's where we're putting historic things like the stuff that tribal historians were finding in their own collections that we didn't put in the book. Um, and so the, the fun thing to have Pam in the room for is um, we've been finding a lot of tribal newsletters. Yes. Um, and Donald Soctoma just has tons and tons of these newsletters. And we had a small grant to get him and um, the Tomaquag Museum down in Rhode Island and... Um, a couple of Wampanoag grannies. We, we got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to bring them some scanners and um, the right software and a librarian who would sort of show them how to scan properly and create the proper data and keep track of everything they scanned. So Donald just sort of went to town on scanning mm-hmm. these newsletters. And um, we have a sub-exhibit on Donland Voices devoted to periodical literature. I mean... And we created this sort of spreadsheet. By my count, there's at least 40 different tribal newsletters all over New England from about 1930 was the first one. 1936, the Narragansett Dawn that was published in Rhode Island. And then there are tons and tons and tons from the 60s and 70s. And we got a f- not quite a full run, but a significant run of Maine Indian newsletters, which were typed up by Zipsis in her own 
Pam, I'd love to know where she was doing it. Was this in her kitchen? I mean, these are uh, extraordinary. Well, I wasn't like born yet pages. when she started. <laughs> She's not that old. So, um, <laughs> but um, well, you, Carol? Yeah, she was. Down Pam in, was in a basket by then. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Carol was a reporter. Yeah, she um, she started down in Freeport at my grandmother's house, my dad's uh-huh. mom. Um, and then moved up to Indian Island. Um, and that was, I, the first one that I read after you sent me some were um, uh, 1971, my birth year. Um, and she had put my, my birth announcement in there, which I, was, I thought yes, was pretty I cool. <laughs> awesome. Wow. But yeah, she, um, she really put a lot into it and did it for free. You know, that was, she just had passion about her people and culture. Yeah. Were you were you around Carol when she was writing? Yeah, I think I was in high school then and she had <laughs> asked me to submit stories and I think I did a few, I don't know, and uh I think the tribes were uh trying to come together then. I don't remember too much news from the other tribes, but I think uh Indian people were gathering together then and talking and you know, talking about their uh problems in the different places. Yeah. I was surprised yeah. about how much information she put in there on like tribes west of the Mississippi. Yeah. Um, really? There's a lot about oh. them in there. Um, but then I think as things progressed it was she turned more towards uh, main tribes. Yeah. She although I didn't read all of them. Bit. Yeah, she yeah. did travel quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. She went on the Ford Foundation she got a Ford Foundation. I think she was aware of what happened to people in other places. Yeah. It also looks like she was subscribing to other tribal newspapers from all over the country, right? Uh-huh. So she's got stuff pretty regularly that she seems to retype from um, the Navajo Times. Uh-huh. There was something called Indian News from Ontario. There was something called the Indian Record in Winnipeg. Wow. Um, and then there's she gets letters to the editor yeah. from yeah. other native newspapers. So there's one letter to the editor that said, oh, hey, I was just reading the Cherokee Times, and we learned about your newsletter. So, like, she was part of this incredible network ah. of mm-hmm. other native newsletter writers. I don't oh. – it would be super interesting to find her subscription lists. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I have um, her paperwork. Um, I'll look through it and see what I can, what I can find. Yeah. She says she was she had over eight hundred subscribers, like yeah. within the first year. Wow! And that That's was in the what seventies or when was that? Um, so this is sixty six. Yeah, sixty six. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a precursor to the civil rights movement, and then yeah. you know our land claims. It was building up to that. She really had a finger on the pulse all the way through there. Yeah. She sure did. Yeah. The other. Uh, now there's she had a whole series of those newsletters. Um, the other two newsletters that you feature is uh, one that uh, it's called the Wabanaki Legislative News. Yeah. <clears throat> with Donald and I. By a very famous writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Donald. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a uh, a bunch of those, uh, and, and that was the first time that uh, legislators, tribal representatives, had actually put out newsletters mm-hmm. ever. So that was a historic. Uh-huh. Those newsletters that we put out were, were the, probably the first and the last that I've... They're been, amazing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then there was the Wabanaki Alliance, mm-hmm. which I think Steve Cartwright yeah. Yeah. did one heck of a job. Yeah, that was really good. I happened to... Uh, I told a story... I can't even remember who was telling it to. Maybe you, Siobhan. I don't know. But uh, remember, I had a, a speaker from one of my lecture series, uh, Isabel Knockwood. Yeah. And uh, she, because she wrote the book, um, it, uh, something about the depth. From the depth. From the depth. Yep, out of the depth. Out, out of the, the depth, depth. yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, she agreed to be my one of my... Uh, uh, keynotes at, at, at my lecture, and she, and she stayed at my house, and uh, she was telling me, you know, she goes, Donna, um, I didn't have such a good time 
yeah. in, on Indian Island. And, you know, I guess when her, her husband passed and she had to leave. And uh, I said, oh, that's really, that's too bad that, you know, that happened. And, uh, and I, was, I was going through the, the Wabanaki Alliance, and there's this big article on this whole thing. Uh, that whole incident that that she was referring to. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and and it told who the chief was, and she thought that I was the police chief at the time, but I don't think I was. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I hope I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to read that one. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they've got all of these 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 stories, these you know, life life stories, basically yeah. in, in these newsletters, and uh, there's a lot of current history there that's mm-hmm. really uh it would be it would have been lost otherwise yep I, yeah. somebody put me in touch with you know what's happening right today is history yeah. exactly. right to have a handle on that what's right. going on yeah yeah and um i i wanted uh, donald to be on the show but he was doing something with some a, a funder for one of his projects yeah. so he couldn't make it, but uh, you know these are these are really important uh, stories, and and uh, and I think they they also encourage new writers. Mm. Yeah, yes. you know, people people who are not just kids, not just youth, and not just students, but people who are older, and you know. Just because we're past sixty doesn't mean we we stop thinking. Oh right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> we have more to say. Then. I was exactly. going to say, yeah, exactly. It's richer, <laughs> better so, content. Yeah. So you know, I, 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 it's valuable. It really is, and in uh, the fact that uh, uh, tribal members uh, are proven that they can really write well mm. and be articulate and, and articulate things. So, uh, Chiffon, what else do you have on that site? You've got... So, we've got um, also almost a full run of a newsletter called the Aroostook Indian. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, what Carol said was right about these newsletters having their finger on the pulse of the civil rights movement. Um, So, the Aroostook Indian was a newsletter that um, Tom Batiste... It was Mi'kmaq, and Terry Polchus did up at Ricker College, which I guess is closed now, in Holton. Ricker College, and they were using a mimeograph machine, and they were putting this newsletter out as often as they could from about 1969 on. And what they said they wanted to do in the newsletter was organize um, all the Native people up in Maine who were living in super rural and poor areas mm-hmm. off reservation. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, um, so this is before the tribes got federal recognition. Yeah. And I find it very poignant because, you know, Micmac and Maliseet and Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people are sort of all working together mm. on this newsletter um, and all working in alliance. And there's, mm. there's recipes in there. There's, stories, there's um, book reviews, and there's, you know, sort of activist reports on, you know, here's what happened when we went down to town hall and gave the welfare officer hell for not not supporting us. Um, It's really Mm -hmm. amazing history, Um, sort of similar to what's going on in the Maine Indian newsletter. And there's there's a couple of issues in the Maine Indian newsletter where Zipsis, you know, actually asks for volunteers. So she's not just reporting news. She's not just typing out stuff that she sees in newslet, you know, in newspapers and mm-hmm. stuff that she has, you know, people like Carol reporting. She is also using it as an activist document. So she's asking for volunteers from um in this I think this is one of the nineteen sixty eight issues. She asks for a volunteer from every legislative district in the state who can inform legislators about native affairs. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. Um, That's not a bad idea now. uh, (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, What year was that? 68? Yeah. Somewhere in 68. um, And, you know, one one possibility that we are still working on, except it it 
slow and it costs money, um, is you can take newsletters like this, right, which right now they just sort of appear in a PDF format. You know, so you, you click on the Wabanaki Legislative News, and you kind of have to read it, right? It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. You can't really search it. But you can um, use a technology called optical character recognition and create searchable documents. So in a way, if you could do that with all these newsletters, somebody could go to the website and, say, type in their family name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just sort of perusing the main Indian newsletter this morning, and there was somebody named um, Viola Dana. Mm-hmm. Um, who kept winning, it sounds like she was a young girl at the time, but she kept winning all these awards. And Zipsis would periodically say, Viola, Viola Dana just got a job at this really you know, great internship, or Viola Dana just got um, a scholarship, mm-hmm. a summer scholarship. And how interesting it would be you know, for somebody to sort of say, hmm, I wonder what my auntie was doing at that time, yeah. and yeah. be able to type her name in and just see what kinds of human interest stories were getting mm-hmm. reported. Yeah, and, and that's like a, that would be a, a, a cross-reference? Could you, theoretically, could you type a family name in and and get to all of the newsletters? That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of work, but I mean... It's a ton of work. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> impossible, but just I'm just thinking, yeah, you know, kind of reaching there. Yeah. It's not actually impossible. I mean, there is a search bar on the website... That even now, you know, if you go, so I'll do it right now, and I type in Donna Loring. Did you have um, to do the that? On the, <laughs> the website, you know, it will it will bring up okay four issues of the Wabanaki Legislative News plus writings on civil rights by Donna Loring. So mm-hmm. it at least gets you that far, but it wouldn't get you if if I typed in Viola Dana, I would get nothing. Uh. Um, so just an interesting possibility. So I think that this this website and, and, the, and the, the Donlin Voices book and all of these, these newsletters and these stories, uh, you know, I just think it's it's just a, a treasure trove of our history, mm-hmm. our, uh, you know, like modern history. It's like we're not going back 100 years back to colonial times, yeah. you know. And, and I think it's important that that we know about current things you know it's like it it helps with our self-identity i think i mean i think it helps non-native people too understand i don't care (laughs) (laughs) who our neighbors are and you know the fact that you didn't all disappear in 1676 Mm -hmm. and um just really i can't and i cannot maybe you all can i cannot think of any book that really tells 20th century New England Native history. Right. Um, like, I remember when that series came out in the Bangor Daily News, um, Colin, what's that journalist's name? Uh, yes, I did know. a big series on, I think it was Passamaquoddy politics. Col- Colin Woodard. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, people really read that avidly because mm. I think they were hungry for the history. And, um, you know, this history has been written by Native people. Um, it's just sort of, I, I never like saying things are buried in archives, you know, because Well, I mean, they are. Work in <laughs> ar- yeah, but they're not um, as visible as they could be, so... It's true. You know, I mean, like, it's like, I'm sure that there are scholars, there are Native scholars that have done uh, their, their doctrinal thesis and whatever and on certain issues, and it's just up in some shelf in the <clears throat> library right you know yeah. yeah so it's that sort of thing um, right and oh. when you mentioned uh uh the the aroostic newsletter mm-hmm. in the early 70s i think you said yep 69 yeah. yeah so what brought what came to my mind was with uh tom batiste and terry pulches um and there was somebody else. I forget who. Marie Batiste. Yeah, the and uh, Tom, somebody. I'll I'll, I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. But what came? I think what happened there was there was a uh, a 1974 United States Civil Rights Report that was written. The uh, the United States 
Maine Commission on Civil Rights formed, and they did a they did a study on uh, Maine Indians, mm-hmm. and that study basically came up with uh, the fact that the state was uh, neglecting the tribes. Uh, okay. A lot of bad, a lot of bad press. They didn't yep. like it. Mm-hmm. So there was something that actually came of that. Uh, but there's never been a review of that report because they made recommendations. And there's never been a, a, mm-hmm. a review that you go back and say, oh, well, this is what, in 1974, this is what they recommended. Right. What did they ever do? Nothing. And, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, but, I mean, you know, it, it's it's negative, but, I mean, it, it proves a point. Yeah. yeah. You know? You know, it's so interesting that you say that. I was just starting to skim. Um, I haven't read through all of the main Indian newsletters because she was indefatigable. Um, but I was starting to read in the 60, like 67, 68, it sounds like there was some kind of federal investigation of the tribal schools in Maine. Right. And somebody was threatening to close them because they were allegedly segregated. Do you all remember anything about that? I remember reading an article like that with the picture of the nuns and the kids out there. Yeah, Yeah, there's a backstory to that. Um, And but I wasn't I was in Vietnam, so I'm just clearing myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was nowhere near this. (laughs) But I think it was due to them getting federal funding. You can't discriminate. Yeah, yeah, I think, but there was a, there was a little group, there was this little group of women who were, uh, well, there were, Lucy Pula was one, Mm -hmm. Uh, Florence Shea, who really was, she's got a little book that she wrote, uh, which is not very nice for the state, (laughs) Florence Shea and um, Violet Francis, and, uh, my non-native grandmother was. They were all involved with this little group, who didn't like the uh, parochial school, mm. and they thought it should be public. Uh-huh. So they were oh. stirring all this stuff up in the background. Uh huh. Oh, so it was them, huh? Yeah, it was, it was them. <laughs> uh, well, they had a point, I guess. <laughs> so, I mean, so it, you know, it's it's a lot of the stuff that went on back then. Nobody, nobody, you know, even our own communities yeah. don't realize what was going on back back then and yeah. some of the issues that we mm-hmm. had growing up. So, And it was women stirring stuff up. Right on. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The clan mothers. <laughs> yeah. So. But, um, Interesting. So, Carol. Yeah. When you... We're working with, uh, you did work with Sipsis, right, at some point? You, uh-huh. Did you help her with her anything, newsletters or stories? or? Yeah, I wrote stories, just a couple of, you know, I barely remember it, but I remember the newsletter and her beginnings, you know, of her uh, doing that. I was, my God, I didn't know, 15, 16, wow. somewhere around there. Yeah, that so. was a long time. <laughs> oh yeah, just kidding. Yeah, I was gonna say, did I work with her? Yeah, most of my life. And yeah. Now that I think of it, she yeah. was quite a mentor. Yeah. You know, she, uh, her, well, Isabel, her, and I used to sit around my kitchen table and talk about things we were gonna write, and we have all written. Mm. We were like a little support team for each other That's so back cool. then. Yes. Huh. yes. So we, it seemed like there was a lot of little groups of women that. You know, got together yeah. and plotted and planned, and and then there were the little little ones that were under the table listening to you all talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard about that too. <laughs> yeah, what about that? Favorite times when friends would come over and would have tea and talk and tell stories. Yeah, Carol, do you remember the other? So, in 1968, I saw there were three reporters uh-huh. working for Zipsis. One was you. Uh-huh. One was somebody named Morris Brooks. From Township? Brooks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And one was named Mary Yarmal from Zipaik. Yeah. Um, are they still around? Jesus. Mary is. Mm-hmm. Mary Yarmal. Yeah. I don't think Morris Brooks. That's an old-time name. Hmm. Yeah. 
So I'm they not were, even sure who yeah. they So they were reporters for Sipsis, huh? Yeah. Hmm. They were on the beat. <laughs> Did they, they actually write articles for, for Sipsis? I guess or? so, yeah. I'm going to start paging through more of them to sort of see if I can yeah. make a little catalog of who wrote what and what month. Wow. That's really interesting. I don't think I did much. I was just becoming, you know, just emerging from, my, well, you know, life on the res. You don't yeah. get much exposure to much of anything, really, yeah. except what's right around you. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and but things, you know, expanded outward with, like I said, with the civil rights movement and, you know, all that. Yeah. Yeah, she actually took up for me at school. I wore a headband, and they told me I couldn't, and it became a push-and-pull tug. And wow. I remember Sipsis coming in the school first. He went to see the principal. And when she came in, she was dressed in her regalia, <laughs> buckskin, moccasins, everything. She went in there, and he came to me after and said, I understand, you know, you had this and something about the Star of David and what it means to Jews, and then told me I could wear my headband. Wow. <laughs> then, of course, all the other girls or the rest of the population want to wear headbands. They don't <laughs> want me to have any special rights. Yeah, yeah. You can't have special rights. It's got to be just the same as yes. everyone else. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah right. That's, that's been the beat they've put on us since, you know, mm. parochial school. Yep. <laughs> so, Carol, I'm curious, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Mm-hmm. Uh, getting the Transformer Tales published. Oh. Margo and I are working on that because there's a lot of stories that we didn't know about, 20 more besides the ones that were in the play, and some are in the language that I didn't even know about. Ah. So we're going to try to publish those, and uh, I wrote. we're writing a proposal now, and University Press uh, didn't seem interested in publishing but uh, and University of Amherst picked us up, and there'll be a greater distribution, which I think is great because the messages in there not only are they our values, but they're quite timely for today's world. It's yeah. all about conservation, environment, yeah. use, and distribution hmm. from yeah. the Penobscot point of view, from our values. So it's it's pretty exciting, and yeah. So I'll be do you have a timeline for that stuff? And timeline, yeah. Uh, we were putting in the proposal soon, and Connor said he'll be done with the dictionary in 2017, so that'll go in soon. And I think what, there is a timeline deadline, but I can't remember any exact date, but we'll be, uh, you know, coming right along with it. What's so great about doing this, too, is Connor's put, I don't know, 13 to 15 of those stories in I written Penobscot, so I'm looking at oh, upcoming nice. students, you know, because Krashen said if you can read in a language, you can learn it, mm-hmm. and that'll be a great asset for uh, language learning. You know, if the oh, ever awesome. school ever does turn around and do something about Penobscot, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, about so you, exciting. Pam. Yeah, <coughs> about is. you, Pam. You writing anything or? Um, I'm always writing. Um, I do only have one book that I had published for my son, and that was Little Owl Boy. And I did that when um, it was like a creation kind of story about um, him, and then it's the real story. My mom happened to stop by after when this whole real incident happened, uh, and she pretty much told me to um, document it and write it down. And then I had it... Um, he even he was like five, and he went to the Bangor Public Library, and um, and we did a little reading of it and showed him the little feathers, and um, but I'm just kind of I don't know, trying to figure out my life right now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I had no idea you published a book, Pam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I Mind had um, blown. Yeah, uh, Robin Hood Press. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, Diane Prizio down in Brooks. Um, she she print, printed it up for me about a hundred oh, hundred copies. Right what's the name of what's the title? Uh, I actually have it right here. Oh yeah, well, too, like I said, it's too bad this isn't TV. Could yeah. <laughs> <laughs> could have got to see a um, puppet and a book. Yeah, here. and see here's the owl that my son sketched, oh, yeah. um, and it's little owl boy. Uh, mm-hmm. My my intent was to have my husband. Um, 
draw the pictures at, on the top. Where we yeah. left it blank. Yeah. Um, so the first part of the book is about Turtle Woman, um, yeah. how she wanted to have a baby. And then the second part of the book is the actual when my son found a dead owl in his play park. And uh, I was kind of scared because I had heard it was a messenger of mm-hmm. death. But as I called around to tribal members, um, found out that wasn't the case at all. Hmm. Okay, well, that's great. And uh, we're going to be carrying on this conversation at some point once, you, once we get our books all written and whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I want to thank you all. Uh, for thank joining you, me today. Yes, thank, thank you, Donna. Yeah. Um, and great to talk with you, Carol and Pam. You too, Donna. Yes, really both, fun. Yes, this was a good Keep time. Keep up the good work, Pam. You too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, you've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, track called Little Eagles, from his new from his new CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank Dr. Chiffon Sr., Pam Odusis Cunningham, and uh, and Carol Dana, uh, and our engineer uh, Joel. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and please join us again next month for uh, another Webinacki Windows. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you. The Homelessness Marathon radio broadcast brings the 